Well, our text is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, the first eight verses. So please follow along. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Well, today is Valentine's Day, as you know, and in the bulletin this morning, um, I would encourage you later to read the article that my wife wrote, and she mentions the connection with Valentine, St. Valentine, and persecution. And there's not always a um, clear understanding, because sometimes it's hard to distinguish the, the facts from the fiction in old stories, but Beth wrote a very, very fine article there that I would encourage you to read later. Um, but that leads us to just bring up the subject, as I think Paul does in First Thessalonians, of persecution. And I hope you know that persecution of believers, persecution of followers of Christ, is very real today. And even though it's not pleasant, and none of us like to talk about it, none of us like to think about it, we'd like to rather just kind of go through our lives today and enjoy our, our comfortable times, um, I always want us to to have it in the forefront of our minds. And the reason is because the scripture tells us not to forget those around the world that are being persecuted for no other reason than because they are some of the redeemed. They confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. Um, in the book of Hebrews, we're told very specifically, remember those who are in prison as though you were in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Also, I want, and I have wanted for 34 years, for us to be prepared. Because unless something changes, persecution in various forms, to various degrees, is coming right here to us. Every day, 13 Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith in Christ. Every day, 12 Christian Buildings or churches are attacked, and every day 12 Christians are unjustly arrested or imprisoned. Another five are abducted. The 12 most extreme countries on earth right now for persecution just because of your Christian faith are North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Eritrea, Yemen, Iran, Nigeria, you were waiting for that, weren't you, Michael and Hannah? India, Iraq, and Syria. 
In North Korea, Christians are considered hostile elements to be eradicated. Christianity is not permitted to exist anywhere in Afghanistan. In Somalia, Christians are high-value targets. Christians in Pakistan live with constant threat of mob attacks. Christian converts in Sudan are targeted for persecution. Christians are imprisoned and dying in shipping containers in Eritrea. Persecution is especially bad and is getting especially bad in India. Uh, It's the world's largest democracy, and it's been a country that that hitherto wasn't all that bad. Well, ever since the new president was elected about five years ago, India is moving to the, the top parts of the list of places where Christians are most persecuted. In many of the worst nations, and I, th- I thought this was interesting. I'm not going to elaborate upon it. I'll let you digest it. Many of the worst nations are surveillance nations where ubiquitous cameras track everyone's movements, making sure they're not in violation of the state. Just let that sink in and let your mind go to all the cameras, all the ring doorbells, all the... Um, tattling we've seen of of one person upon another, even during COVID in this last year, and realize um, that we are approaching the point of being a surveillance nation. These things always sneak up on people slowly, and they don't realize what's really happening until one day, you know, there's, there's a lockdown, and it's not a COVID lockdown, it's a lockdown, and, and ideas that are not popular are censored and eradicated. Uh, <clears throat> I won't give you graphic stories this morning that might burn images in your brain. I don't like to do that. Um, but for those of you that are interested, not in graphic stories, but in knowing more about the persecuted church, two websites I strongly recommend are Open Doors USA, opendoorsusa.org, and persecution.org. Um, there's a lot of really good material on, on those websites. This week, one day, I was up in our office at home, and I'm trying to work on something, and Beth is playing an audio from one of those websites, and I couldn't concentrate on what I was trying to do because of what I was hearing coming from her computer. But I would welcome you to, to check them out so, you, so you're aware of what's going on around the world. Paul tells the Thessalonians that he dared to tell them the gospel despite strong opposition. And we, we brought this up last week. Um, he encountered it in Philippi. Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and Corinth. And he says right here in our text today that he was shamefully treated in Philippi. All of the early apostles encountered it, and all of them lost their lives for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul certainly didn't enjoy it, but he presents it and mentions it in his epistles very matter-of-factly. As this is reality, this is, this is normalcy if you're going to be a Christian in this world. Not just for those apostles and those so-called super ones, but for everyday believers, yeah, it is, it is normalcy. It is normal. It's not the new normal. It's always been normal for those that adhere to the gospel of Jesus. Which leads me to making this point and I, I hope this will sink into you this morning. If you don't already know this and live with this reality, I hope you will leave here today and you'll always remember what I'm about to say. Because it's not something that's often brought up or mentioned, except perhaps in a, a, um, 
a theological class. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world can never coexist peacefully. I'm going to say it again. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world can never get along like sister and brother, hand in hand. They can never coexist peacefully. Martin Luther, the great reformer, saw this and, and, and mentioned it in his writings. He said, we can never establish the kingdom of God on earth. If you think back to what you know about history, experiments to establish the kingdom of God on earth have always failed, and they always will fail. We have one right in our own backyard, the city of Zion. The city of Zion was such an experiment to try to establish the kingdom of God in a local community in the middle of the United States. It was formed around 1900 by Alexander Daly. The center of the city was Daly's church. Streets were given Bible names, and they still have those Bible names today. Um, Daly's church, that, that organization, tried to con- take control, have control of all business in the city of, of Zion, and they tried to legislate Christian mores. And I'm sure their motives were very good. But the experiment failed, as all such experiments will always fail. Um, you don't need to be a prophet to know that. If you know If you know God's word, you know it will fail because the kingdom of God is never going to peacefully coexist with the kingdom of this world. In the 60s and 70s, if you're old enough to remember those hippie days, Christian communes sprung up all over the place. And they were all designed with good intentions, attempting to make the kingdom of God happen in the here and now to establish Christian community with all of its benefits and none of its negatives. And yet, they always fail. And the reason is because of the fallenness of people. People are fallen. They are carnal. They have sin natures. And almost inevitably, followers and those kinds of of experiments are ultimately abused by those who have power and authority. It's predictable. It almost always ends up with that. The people who have a power somehow misuse it, and they use it to abuse the people that are following them, almost inevitably. Liberal forms of theology are often bedfellows with the idea that, I think we can make the kingdom of God happen here. I think we can establish God's kingdom on earth. These forms of theology tend to de-emphasize individual responsibility before God, looking more for some kind of a communal responsibility for God, they almost always move away, either slowly or speedily, but most definitely assuredly, from the notion that salvation is individual to a notion that equates salvation with social justice. We need to be people of wisdom living in the world. And it's no wonder that liberal theology often leans towards socialism. If you understand its essence and where it comes from and its tenets, it, it makes sense why it tends to lean towards socialism. The kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God can never peacefully coexist. It's like trying to mix water with oil. 
or trying to put lions and deer in the same enclosure in a zoo. You never see that, do you? There's a reason you don't see that. <laughs> Cats don't get along well with mice or with birds. Shiites and Sunnis don't usually get along too well together. The Bloods and the Crips don't get along well together. To try to establish the kingdom of God on earth is to misunderstand what the kingdom of God is and what Jesus taught about it. The Bible says that we can never point to the kingdom of God like, well, it's over there. It's over there. It's in that city. It's in that country. Jesus said, don't try to point to it and find it. Why? Because the kingdom of God is where? It is within you. Hence, the kingdom of God cannot be legislated. It cannot be mandated. Okay, we're going to set up the kingdom of God right here in this town. It can't be. The kingdom of God is within you. You can't say, well, it's over there. It's over there. It's in that town. It's in that state. Hop a, hop a plane and go there because there they got the kingdom of God over there. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your resources. Live out following Christ where you are. Right here. Live it out here. There necessarily will be clashes between those two kingdoms. Um, Paul says, and you can make a clear connection here, he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, go out from their myths and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. There are very practical applications to the scripture that I just read um, about not being unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Uh, simple application. A believer should not marry a non-believer. It'll cause a life lifetime of, of sorrow and regret and tension and contention because we should not be unequally yoked. Believers should not be in business partnerships with unbelievers. Now, it happens. I've known Christian business people that, you know, they had a great deal. They had a great situation. They were going to form a partnership with somebody who wasn't saved. It's not a good idea. It doesn't usually last. It doesn't usually end well. And the Bible says, don't be unequally yoked together because your basic fundamentals of how you live are different. So how can you do business as partners in a, in a company when your basic fundamentals on how to live are radically different. Oil and water, lions and, and deer. Light cannot have fellowship with darkness. So again, the kingdom of God cannot peacefully coexist with the kingdom of Satan. Most of us here today probably agree that we are living in the last days. Um, we don't know for sure when Jesus is coming back, of course, but um, certainly, we're closer to it than we were yesterday. You can't disagree with that. We're closer to it than we were um, 2,000 years ago when the Word was written. And we know, scripturally, that as we live out the last days, as we approach the time of the return of Christ, that the clash 
between these two kingdoms is only going to grow worse, more pronounced, more animosity, hostility, um, enmity. And the chief reason for that, and you probably know this already, is because Satan knows his time is short. He's had 2,000 years since the resurrection of Christ to play his little games. But every day, more and more and more, he is smelling the sulfur from the lake of fire, which was created for him and his fallen angels. Revelation says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. You wonder why your life is so hard, why there's so much opposition, why the struggle just seems to be increasing. Well, the Bible tells us, because Satan knows his time is short. And he knows it's not going to be much longer before he ends up in the lake of fire. And the only thing he can do is come against the children of God. That's all he can do. He can't re-crucify Christ. He can't march into heaven's throne room and take on one God. If he did, he'd fail. He's a fallen angel. All he can do is attack us and come against us. So that's why your life can be so hard. That's why when things are going so great, and you're just so amazed at the goodness of God, and suddenly the bottom falls out of you. What was that? I thought things, and all of a sudden you're dealing with something. Well, Satan knows his time is short, and he gives you no peace. He gives me no peace. We're going to be feeling the brunt of this because increasingly, day by day, Christians are more and more in the crosshairs of Satan. The sinners who are rebellious towards the Lord Jesus Christ, our mere presence is a reminder to them that God's judgment is coming. And so often Satan attacks us through other people. And other people are angry because just seeing our face reminds them that they too are facing judgment and it's getting nearer and nearer every day. Put simply, if you and I desire to live for Christ, we will face opposition. We may or may not have our lives threatened, but we will encounter opposition. A few minutes ago, at the outset, I mentioned that that song we sang about I will praise you from the lowest valley, one of the pictures I get in my mind is of myself being persecuted. And that's about the lowest valley I can picture. You know, going through something like what a Dietrich Bonhoeffer went through or, or so many others. Um, that's what I picture. I picture one day that might be George in that situation. And I think, Lord, I want in that situation, I want to praise your name. I want to give glory to you in that darkest moment. That's what I want to do. I think about it now. I try to fix my heart now so it's not a question down the road when it happens. I don't weigh it and ponder, well, should I or shouldn't I? But I've already said, my, I am going to praise you in the midst of whatever pain I could be called or you could be called to go through. I want to be one that says, Lord, you are to be praised. You are glorious and great, and I will worship you. And I won't try to hold on to my ending of this life even our bodies that we're so attached to have been since birth. I won't try even to hold on to that. I want to only hold on to you. Can I hear an amen to that? Um, Jesus said in John, if the world hates you, you know 
that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of this world, the world would love you as its own. Don't you see the world loving itself? And you think, well, how can this be? Well, it can be because Jesus said it's going to be that way. The world loves its own. Worldly people love worldly people. But if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We just read or just talked of these nations of the world and some of the top 12 and what goes on there. Christians are to be exterminated. They're to be targets. They're not to be allowed to live. And we see in our own country the increasing pressure upon those that even, even want to confess faith in Christ and faith in the word of God and faith in a creator God. We see this increased pressure upon us. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And Paul said in Timothy, and I don't think I've quoted this frequent um, too recently. I probably have but frequently, but not too recently. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be loved by everybody. No, it doesn't say that, does it? Will be, everybody say it, persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So people of the world, not only are they trying to deceive people, they themselves are deceived. It says it plainly. That's what's going on. That's what's going on around you. We should not be surprised when we run into opposition because of our faith, our life in Christ. What should surprise us and alarm us is if we go too long of a period without opposition. That's when we ought to get quiet and take stock of our lives and make for certain that we haven't somehow compromised. We haven't somehow grown a bit lukewarm and, and making uh, you know, bedfellows with the world. If we fit in really comfortably with the world, and we say, I don't know what Pastor George is talking about today. I, I don't even relate with anything he's saying because my life in the world is just good. It's comfortable all the time. And I have so many so many friends that aren't serving Jesus, and we get along just great. Um, there's a problem. There's a problem. Think about Lot in Sodom. One of the, um, the scriptures about Lot in Sodom that we don't often think about, and we think about the, the gross immorality, we think about the, the angels coming, we think about the destruction, we think about Lot's wife. We don't always think about a little verse that says, his righteous soul was tormented daily while he lived in that wicked city. Lot couldn't get along peacefully with his neighbors. He wasn't highly reputed. It wasn't comfortable. His righteous soul was tormented daily just having to live there, having to live among worldly people that were living according to the flesh, living without any regard to God. And I'm sure most of us sense that to a degree that our, our righteous souls are tormented with what's around us, what's going on around us, what's being accepted. And we start thinking, what's wrong with me? Well, nothing's wrong with you. You're like Lot. You can't coexist in a world that says we have no use for God. We don't want him. We don't want his standards. We don't want Christian mores. We want to live according to our flesh. 
you and I ought to have in those, those many situations our righteous souls tormented by having to, to deal with that and live with it. If we don't sense our righteous souls being tormented, I would say there's a problem. We've gotten too comfortable. Maybe we've made a bargain with the devil. Maybe we've made a contract with the devil. You can do that. You, know, you, can, you can make deals with him. You can agree to do certain things if he'll do certain things for you, and I, I, I think you'll probably, he'll probably be faithful to that bargain you make with him, but it will be at the expense of your soul. I will say, what is it worth to gain the whole world but lose your own soul? What's it worth? I've known so many people that have it all, and yet when they die, they don't take anything with them. They can't even dress themselves when they die. They can't even wash their own bodies up when they die in their fluids. They can't do anything. Have we compromised our faith? If, if, no, if we never sense any pressure from non-believers, does anybody know that we're a believer? Or we're just, just very careful about keeping it kind of on the down low? We don't need to bring it up. No, no, no need to cause problems here. I just kind of keep it to myself. And I have my faith. It's important to me. But nobody knows that I have my faith. Nobody knows that I'm a Christian. I think it's great when people start thinking, oh, I think he's kind of strange. It's kind of a strange family, the ones that live in that house over there. Um, they seem kind of super religious. You know? That's probably a good thing. If you have a reputation in your community, in your job, in your neighborhood, um, in your school, if you have a reputation that you're strange because of you're one of them, that's probably a very good thing. That's probably a wonderful thing. John, the apostle, said, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but it is from the world. Remember that Jesus said, and I know I say this probably too frequently, that the road to life is narrow, and there's very few on it. And the road to hell, the road to destruction, is wide and broad, and it's crowded. It's like an eight-lane highway in Southern California. Everybody racing to get to hell, racing to get to an eternity of separation from God. But that, that road to life can be a very narrow, bumpy, lonely little trail, and you wonder, what's wrong with me? And nothing's wrong with you. You just have found the pearl of a great price, and you keep your eyes fixed like the, the, the star in Pilgrim's Progress. You have your eyes on the prize. Amen? Jesus talks much about the cost of following him. I think a fair question for any of us anytime is, what is following Jesus costing me right now? It's a fair question. What is it costing you? If it's not costing you anything, it's probably a problem. But if it's costing you in a relationship with your spouse, relationship with your kids, relationship with your parents, getting anywhere at work, anywhere at school, if it's costing you something, if you're feeling pressure, that's probably a good 
good sign. Anytime we set our hearts to follow Jesus, we will be asked to pay a great price. You know, one of the wonderful paradoxes of Christianity is that salvation is completely free, but it costs you everything. It's a free gift, but man, it'll cost everything that you have and are. Examples, certain rich young ruler was asked by Jesus to lay down all his earthly possessions if he really wanted to follow the Savior. Abraham, good old Abraham, had many sons, you know that? <laughs> I'm one of them, so are you. Abraham was asked to leave his country, his people, and his father's household and to head out for worlds unknown. He didn't know what life would look like. He had to leave everything familiar, everything that he had, and to head out only with a promise in his heart from God and a hope in God, but nothing tangible beyond that intangible hope. And he left it all. That's what he was asked to do, to just follow God in the dark. Noah, we've been talking about Noah a lot lately. He was asked to build a boat, an ark, and he became the laughing stock of everyone. Nobody wants to be the laughing stock. Nobody wants to look like the neighborhood nutcase. Nobody does. You want to be accepted. You want people to respect you. And yet Noah had to leave all that respectability and look like a first-class nutcase for 100 years while he's building an ark on dry ground. Nehemiah. I've been thinking about Nehemiah so much lately. I'm reading through the book. Yesterday in early prayer, we started using it as our weekly um, chapter that we read every week when we meet for early prayer. Nehemiah was asked to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. Seems innocent enough. And yet at that very, um, very request that God put upon him and his agreement to, to take it on made him a lightning rod for trouble. And that's what will happen when we decide, I'm going to follow you, Lord. Wherever you lead, I will follow you. That will make us a lightning rod for trouble, for opposition. By the way, I would encourage any of us to read the book of Nehemiah at home, just chapter by chapter. I think it speaks so much to what Christians are being asked to do today and how they are, how we should respond to the increasing opposition around us. I think Nehemiah is the perfect book to read right now. And personally, my, my general advice with, with Bible reading is don't attempt to read fast. Don't attempt to get through a certain number of chapters. Attempt to just sit with, I can't sit, just sit with the Word of God and say, Lord, what do you want to say to me? And just read it slowly and think on it. Uh, I think it's a much better approach than saying, well, i, I got to read three chapters a day and three tomorrow, and, and oh, no, I'm behind now. I'll never catch up, and i got to check all. No, I, I thank the Lord I got delivered from that at some point. I am such a, such a driven person and such a person that, that makes tasks for myself and checks them off that I was getting into bondage in my Bible reading because of the pressure I put on myself to make sure I got through a program in a length of time. And then I discovered it's way better just to sit with God's Word and not feel like I have to read two chapters, three chapters, four chapters. Just sit. If I read one chapter and it's me and him, and I'm letting the Word speak to me, 
It's way better than being able to check something off on a Bible reading program. So that's a, that's a promotion for reading the Word, but doing it in that kind of a fashion instead of letting a program dry you. So I, got, I read the Bible in nine months. Well, good for you, you know? So what? <laughs> Did it speak to you? Did you spend time with the Lord? Was the Lord able to search your heart, or you just got through the words in nine months? Okay, enough of that. <clears throat> the ultimate attack that can be made against us is an attack on our faith. And that's exactly what happened to Paul in Thessalonica. I've not left the text. I've been actually expounding. You think I thought it was something else. I'm not. I'm sticking with the text. Um, the ultimate attack will be made against our faith. That's exactly what Paul encountered in Thessalonica. Um, he says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Why would Paul have to say that? Because he was being accused of doctrinal error. He was being accused of his motives were impure. And he was accused of being a deceiver. He's just trying to deceive. And as we live out our lives with Jesus as Lord, people will accuse us of the same things that they accused Paul of. They will say that our belief system, it's wrong. It's bad. They will say, Christians are narrow-minded. You're bigoted. They will say, there's no eternal hell. There's no place where non-believers in your faith will spend eternity in separation from God. That, that's, 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 a, that's an old fairy tale. Um, I saw some crazy article a few months ago. I don't know where I saw it. I don't remember much about it. I just, just popped on my head right now. Um, but, you know, some scholar, group of scholars, has figured out the origin of hell in literature. Well, I could have told them the origin of hell in literature. It's right here. But this is what so-called scholars will do to undermine the truth of God's word, to explain it away so that no longer do we have to be responsible to God, but we can, we can judge God. We can judge his book because we're wiser than that. They will say that Jesus is not the only way to be saved. How narrow is that? There's many roads to God. Um, and just, just be sincere. Follow the one that strikes you as right. And just follow that, and we'll all end up the same place. They will say it doesn't matter what we believe or how we live, as long as nice as we are nice people, and as long as we don't hurt anybody. You've heard that. I heard it too. It's not what Jesus has said in the scripture, is it? They will accuse us of impure motives. Why would somebody accuse a follower of Christ who's living righteously? Why would they accuse them of having impure motives? Simple, because they are guilty and they are ashamed of the things they're doing. And so they accuse us of doing the same because they think everybody does because they do. Um, I've noticed this with, with people that accuse you of being a liar. Do you know who accuses you and me of being a liar? People that are liars. Because they think everybody lies, so they lie. And so they assume that I'm not telling the truth, you're not telling the truth. Because they never tell the truth. 
And that's how it works. You know, they're, they're sexually impure. They think, well, you must be doing something too. Why? Because they are. It's out of their guilt, out of their shame, that they will accuse us. They accuse the Apostle Paul. He has impure motives. He's up to something here. The world can't even imagine that we're not doing the same things that they're doing. Why? It's simple. Again, what the Bible says. They're slaves to unrighteousness. They're slaves to their flesh. They cannot help themselves. Nobody can help themselves until they become in Christ. Nobody can. You can't stop what you're doing. You can't stop your sinning until, until you are in Christ. And it might be a good time to, to say, don't try to fix yourself before you come to Christ. You can't. Like the old hymn says, just as I am, I come, I come. Just as I am. You can't clean yourself up first. You can't get rid of those old habits and then come to Jesus. You can't do it. You're a slave. Come to Jesus just as you are, confessing the truth about your soul, the wickedness of your soul, the blackness of your soul. Come to him like that and see what he'll do to clean you up. Don't try to clean yourself up. I will says abstain from every form of evil. And the non-Christian cannot do that. They're slaves. But once we are in Christ, we can. We don't have to be slaves of the flesh. We've been delivered from that. We don't have to yield. When you meet a Christian that says, I just can't help it. I can't stop doing this. Well, they're deceiving themselves. Because if they are really in Christ, they don't have to be a slave anymore. If you catch yourself saying, I just can't help it, it's a problem there. Because you as a believer ought not to be enslaved to your flesh. You were when you weren't saved. You couldn't stop yourself. You couldn't help yourself. But in Christ, you are no longer a slave to that. You're a slave to Christ, not a slave to the carnal nature. <clears throat> They accuse Paul of trickery. They will accuse us of trickery too. They'll think, you've got to have some impure motives here. You've got to be working a plan here. There's something ulterior going on. You can't be for real. You're somehow, you must be profiting from sharing Christ. You figured out how to use Jesus to make money. They accuse Paul of that. They'll accuse you of that as well. But Paul could say, that his heart was pure, that he didn't come with attempts to deceive, he didn't come with impure doctrine, he didn't come with impure motives, that his conscience was clean. As he approached the Thessalonians, he approached the Philippians or the people in Ephesus and a host of other places he went, he could say, and he did say this, my conscience is clean. I have not come with impure motives. My conscience is clean. It's clean before, before God. And he even in this text today, calls God as his witness, which is a pretty serious thing to do. If you're going to call God as your witness, you, you better be not playing games. I wouldn't want to call God as my witness if I think I'm, I'm messing with him, okay? <laughs> I wouldn't want to do that. He just might show the world the reality of, of my heart and I don't want them to do that, okay? So I'd rather be very lowly, very humble, and not say, well, 
What are we boasting um, outside that which is true? How do we respond when we are attacked for our faith, when we're criticized for our faith, when we're falsely accused for our faith? Paul shows us, and he mentions it in our text. We don't have to defend ourselves or argue. Paul doesn't make much of a defense to people. Um, he, He never does. It's usually a waste of time to defend ourselves. Don't go to great lengths to defend yourself. Just just live your life righteously before people. Let God be your defender. Unless we're called before a court, which can happen because of our faith, then Scripture says very plainly, don't worry beforehand what you're going to say. Because in that hour, the Holy Spirit will give give it to you. So bury that little scripture somewhere in your, in your heart. That if one day you are called before a court for high crime, your crime being you're a follower of Christ Jesus, have it predetermined in your heart that you won't plan ahead of time an outline of what you're going to say. I, I do outlines. All my sermons, I have the most complete outlines of any pastor I've ever known in my entire life. But... I have fixed in my heart that if I ever want to stand trial for my Christian faith, I'm not going to think about what I'm going to say. That's out of character for me. I'm not going to. Because the Bible says, don't think about it. In that hour, it will be given to you. And you see it in the book of Acts when people were called before magistrates and all. They, they, just, they just spoke. And it was given to them. John Usher, when he went to, to Germany, uh, not Germany, Russia years ago to hand out Bibles right after it was opened up and it was possible for Christians to do that, um, he was somewhat detained with the other people from his group from America one day for handing out Bibles. And they had to go to the police station or something and show their identification and explain what they were doing. And, and I remember him giving a testimony in our church that, that God gave him what to say. God gave him what to say, and he brought up the scripture that we're talking about. Um, and what he said, it, had, it, wasn't, it, wasn't a spirit, it wasn't a Christian testimony. It wasn't something spiritual. It was just what he said suddenly calmed all the officials down, and they were allowed to leave, which is just like what you might see in the book of Acts. It wasn't always a sermon. It wasn't always a you know, testimony. Sometimes it was just... Something very simple they said, and all of a sudden, the officials could see no more reason to hold them, and they're free to go. You don't, you don't know what God can do in that hour. So just relax and don't plan ahead what you're going to say. All Paul cared about, and all we ought to care about, is what God thought about him. He wasn't concerned with what people thought about him. He wasn't concerned about what the church people thought about him in Thessalonians. He wasn't so concerned about what the town officials thought about him. But he was very concerned with what God thought about him, which is where our emphasis should always be. He wasn't a people pleaser. In verse 4 of our text, he specifically says he doesn't care about pleasing man, but pleasing God. Paul never got hung up on the fear of man, nor should we. Jesus told us in Matthew, he said, fear those who kill, or don't fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Um, The longest time in my life, I thought he was saying to fear Satan, 
And somehow Satan's the one that throws you into hell, therefore fear of Satan. No, Satan can't throw you into hell. God is the one that passes judgment on our souls. So don't fear the one that can, can take your possessions away from you. They can lie about you and sue you in court and take something. Don't fear them. Don't fear the one that can diminish your business. Don't fear the one that can put you in prison. Don't fear the one that can cut your head off. Fear the one who will make the decision about your soul, who has the capability of saying, welcome into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, or can say, depart from me, I never knew you. That's the one to fear. And like Paul, it's so interesting how he writes this text. I mean, it really is. You think about this text and what I've said. It's not the most simple text in the world to preach on, believe me. But all the things he's mentioned, all the things we proclaim, he wraps it all up by saying, well, I'm just going to be continuing to minister gently, just like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So as you and I live out our, our lives, as we uh, live out righteous lives in a world that, that that's hard to do, that that causes friction, uh, contention, continue to live it out and to proclaim the gospel in a gentle way, just like a mama nursing her newborn infant. I mean, if you've ever seen a brand new mother who for the first time has a baby and is nursing an infant, there's no more tender picture, right? I mean, even if you have a woman that's normally a battle axe, when she has her first baby and she's holding, cradling, and feeding him, the nastiest woman becomes nice, becomes sweet and gentle. And Paul says, that's how I share Jesus with you even with all the accusations and all the opposition. And so he was, he was determined, as we ought to, always be gentle, always be gentle in trying to, to share Jesus with people, even in the midst of opposition. How many of you here have ever seen the Hope Diamond? Beth, you have? Georgia, you have? Beth, have you seen it? Okay, yes, it's in the Smithsonian, and it is the real one. That's a common question. Is that the real one, or is that a fake? Um, I'm surprised more people haven't seen it. Um, I saw it many years ago. And the Hope Diamond is the world's largest deep blue diamond. And it measures in at 45.52 carats. Um, there's a story behind that, too. It's kept at the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. It's only left the Smithsonian four times total since it was donated. I saw it when I was a teenager. I'm growing up in Baltimore. It was really easy for us to go to D.C. to see everything there. And I don't know how many times we're at the Smithsonian. I loved going to the Smithsonian. It was a regular family trek that we would take. I got to the point I was bored of it. That's how many times we went. But I never forgot the um, seeing the Hope Diamond because of the very obvious security around it. Um, and I was, just a, I was a kid, and I don't know if it's still stored this way or not because I couldn't find a current picture on the Internet, but I found an old picture, and it was just as I remembered it. 
Um, it was, he went in this room that was filled with all kinds of jewels and showcases, but the centerpiece in this room was this great big round door vault, probably about this big in diameter. Um, you'd call it in the business a money chest because the door will close and rotate and you lock it. And inside that round vault, um, on some kind of probably blue fabric, I don't, I don't remember the color anymore, but a you know, beautiful lined vault with a nice little shelf is the Hope Diamond with the perfect kind of light. Today they would use high color temperature LED light shining on it so it just, just sparkles. That came to mind this week as I was putting the finishing touches on this sermon. Um, Paul says in verse 4, we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. And I hope diamonds considered extraordinarily valuable. But the gospel of Jesus is even more valuable. And we who are believers have been entrusted with the very gospel of God. The very only good news that there is. That's what gospel means. Um, this might not mean anything to you. Um, but if you have any connection with Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, the seminary where I went, and Andy's getting his doctorate right now, and um, you probably know people who have gone there, maybe you went there yourself. Um, but in the seal for Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, there's a little banner near the bottom with a Greek phrase. And if you don't know Greek, you don't know what it says. And early on in my seminary career and in learning Greek and all, I discovered that that little phrase on the banner at the bottom of the seal is these simple words from 1 Thessalonians, verse 4, entrusted with the gospel. Because Trinity considers that you as a student there, you are entrusted with the gospel. And then the question becomes very obvious, what do we do with it? How do we handle it? If we've been saved, God has deposited us with this all-precious gospel, you know, far more valuable than the Hope Diamond. But what do we do when God entrusts us with the gospel? Well, it's been entrusted to us to keep pure. You know, for as long as the gospel has been there, there have been people that have distorted it. Try to make it impure. Try to combine it with something else. Try to distort it. Try to confuse it. That, by the way, is why the Christian church has developed over the years, and we're talking about over 2,000 years, creeds. Creeds were written not because somebody needed a job, and they said, you know, would you pay me to write a creed? No, the creeds were written because there were distortions in the community, and people were saying wrong things about the nature of Christ, the nature of salvation, the nature of God. And so the church saw fit to develop creeds clearly stating where they stood. So we have been entrusted with the gospel, and as such we are to keep it pure and to not allow it to be distorted. Um, <clears throat> one of the news articles I ran across over the last week, maybe you saw it too, kind of a, kind of a scary thing, um, but I think it fits here. I know it fits here. I would mention it. Um, there's a town in Florida called Oldsmar. I never heard of it until this news story came out. But a hacker was able to gain access remotely to the city's water supply treatment center 
and was actually able to turn up the amount of sodium hydroxide in the water supply. Sodium hydroxide is commonly known as lye. And remotely from a computer, they were able to take it from like you know, one part per million to 11,000 parts per million, just like that. But an operator noticed something was funny, that someone had taken control of the computer, and they quick dialed it back down again, um, possibly saving the whole city's water supply and the people that would, would drink it. We are to keep God's gospel pure. Keep it unadulterated, neither adding to it or subtracting from it. Stick with the word as it's written. Don't modernize it. Don't say, well, I think we can make that more relevant for today. Uh, run from anybody that's going to make it more relevant for today. Okay. Stick with the written word of God. That's why it's so important. I don't want to get on the rabbit trail here. But it's so important to make sure what version are you using. You can't trust every version of the scripture, every translation. There are some that are excellent, but there are some that are distortions. You have to know who developed the translation that you're using or the paraphrase you're using. Where were they coming from theologically? What was their conviction? Did they have an agenda? Were they coming from some kind of a splinter group that developed their own quote-unquote translation, but it's, the translation is leaning towards a, an aberrant doctrine of their splinter group. So know what version you're using. Know who did the translation, who did the paraphrase, so that you're not using a distorted scripture. Important. <clears throat> Unlike the diamond that's being kept under extreme lock and key and alarm, I can only imagine what the Smithsonian has in place to protect the Hope Diamond. It's probably pretty cool, actually. Um, the electronic means, the cameras, the guards, the guns that are protecting that 45.52 carat um, diamond. I can only imagine. Well, <clears throat> unlike that, we are not to keep the gospel to ourselves. We're supposed to share it. We're supposed to get it out there in the open so that other people can be gripped with the truth of it and they too can be saved and can be entrusted with the gospel. The gospel has been entrusted to us not to hide under a bushel, like a light, like the gospels talk about, but to share very freely and very boldly. And, and we'll close on this, just as Paul closed the text on this, it's been entrusted to us to share gently with people, just like Paul did as a nursing mother takes care of her newborn infant. Amen.